Good morning. It is so good to see you guys this, this new year. Happy New Year to you. One of the realities that we constantly are in need of is equipping. Um, we, it, no matter what point of faith we find ourselves, whether we've been walking with the Lord for the last week or we've been walking with Him for 40, 50 years, we're always in need of equipping. We're always in need of reminding, of coming back to things. And as we as a church labor in 2022, to make disciples of all nations who will make disciples of all nations. Right here in New Orleans, we need equipping because of the different things that we face, the different worldviews that we come in contact with, some of the questions that are being honestly asked. And sometimes we find ourselves saying, I don't know how to answer that. I, I really don't know how to respond to some of these objections, to some of these questions. Well, God has gifted to the church those to help equip the church. And we have one such servant with us today. His name is James Walker. And one of the events that's going on in town this coming week is called Defending the Faith. It's a conference over at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. It's located right here in our own city in Gentilly, where they're going to be hosting students from all over the place. I met some from Georgia even this morning that are in town for the conference to be able to hear from apologists and theologians and other biblical scholars as they try to help equip leaders in how to contend for the faith in reasonable ways, to talk about theism, about the belief in the existence of God and of Christianity in ways that are winsome, that are convincing, that are reasonable, that are saturated in God's word. And that's exactly what James Walker is here to do with us this morning. You see, I'm so grateful for James because I've watched his way of life for many, many years now. Um, the, this conference has been going on at the New Orleans Seminary, and James has been a staple part of that conference from the beginning. And throughout the years, his message has been consistent, as has his way of life. And so I'm so thankful for you, brother, for your faithfulness to just walk with the Lord to continue to equip the church um, and to continue to come back to our city to help equip us here in New Orleans. I'm thankful because it's not just about being able to come into a, a worship service like this and to be able to speak, but after the worship service today, uh, James has graciously said, yes, I would love the opportunity to spend time with your high school upperclassmen, juniors and seniors, and a couple of college freshmen over lunch that we're going to have in the fellowship hall to give them space to ask questions about the things that they're facing in their high schools, things that they're facing on the college campus, to be able to say, how do I respond to these objections to theism, to the belief of God, and to Christianity, and to be able to have that time. So James, thank you for joining us today and for sticking around for lunch today. So uh, join me in welcoming James as he comes to preach God's word. Chad. Well, good morning and happy new year. Finally here, looking forward to a great year in 2022. Uh, our ministry, I'm, I'm president of an organization called Watchman Fellowship, and it is an apologetics ministry, as, as Pastor shared with you, but our special focus in doing defending the faith or apologetics is in the area of interfaith evangelism. So, you know, how, how can we communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors of another religion or another worldview, another faith, in a way that can communicate, how can we build relationships, how can we share, and, and, and that's what we are in town to talk about and, and do at the seminary. Uh, with me today is one of my staff. We actually have two of our other, uh, three of our other Watchman Fellowship staff members in town for the conference that will be speaking uh, one of them is uh, here with me this morning, Daniel Ray. He's our staff apologist at Watchman Fellowship, and Daniel 
is going to be at the conference talking about his book, The Story of the Cosmos, How the Heavens Declare the Glory of God. He's co-editor, co-author of that book. He's doing actually two related workshops on that uh, this week. I want to encourage you, in fact, tomorrow, it'll be tomorrow, I want to encourage you to take advantage of that. If you look on your little outline that we have, the message outline on the back, you can read more about his book. And uh, I'm going to be sharing tomorrow evening at the seminary. In fact, I've switched books from what we had on your outline because this is the one I'm going to be dealing with. I'm, my, my most recent book, the, What the Quran Really Teaches About Jesus, um, is amazing if you know just a couple of passages to look to in the Quran. It's a great, and the, and the right questions to ask, it's a great way of starting a gospel conversation with a Muslim friend or neighbor. And I know many of you know Muslims and, and have uh, neighbors, maybe family members who uh, are Muslim. Great way to have a gospel conversation. And uh, you can learn more about that, uh, about that book, and it's available out there in the, in the lobby area. And Daniel and I will also be out there to help answer questions about that. But this morning, what I wanted to talk about specifically is the issue of atheists. And so the title of my message today is the question, is there a God? Is there a God? And, and how can we communicate the gospel with, how can we speak the truth in love to atheists, agnostics, and skeptics? How, how many of you know somebody who self-identifies as an atheist? You could tell me their name. Or how about agnostic? How many of you know someone who they don't say they're atheists, but they live their lives as if they're absolutely sure there is no God. Well, this is the message for you. How, how can we have a communication with people? Let me tell you, atheism in the last 20 years has been on the rise. It, it, it kind of really was in decline for decades. And until about the last 20 years, there's a movement that came along called the New Atheist Movement. And uh, uh, the, the ideas really aren't new. It's, it's really the same thing that's been around for about 100 years or so. But what is new is the, the messengers of new atheism are very, very popular. They have, uh, you know, huge Twitter followings and, 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 and amazingly popular YouTube channels, New York Times best-selling books. And, and so the popularity has really shot up. Uh, you have people like uh, Richard Dawkins, probably the most notorious of the new atheists. He's the author of the book, The God Delusion. Or you have people like Sam Harris. Sam Harris wrote the book, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. He wrote also a book on free will. And so uh, Sam Harris is one of these new atheists helping to popularize. Even in the area of entertainment, uh, you have uh, actors and celebrities, people like uh, Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is a British celebrity. He's a an activist and an actor. Uh, you may have recognized him from the TV crime drama Bones. Uh, outspoken atheist and has a, a real following of, of leading people to think in that direction. Or, or maybe you've uh, heard of the late Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, the, uh, the quadriplegic, brilliant um, Cambridge cosmologist, uh, director of research. He was the director of research for the theological, uh, theoretical cosmology at the University of Cambridge. A brilliant guy, author of a number of best-selling books, very much an atheist, very much making these ideas popular. So here's the issue. What used to be 20, more than 20 years ago, uh, topics of philosophy, it, it would be talked about maybe 
maybe at the at the university, uh, maybe with the the philosophy, uh, the the uh, philosophers would talk about this kind of thing: is there a God and atheism? Well, now it's on the popular level. So these same kinds of discussions are taking place on the high school campuses now. Uh, even at the coffee shop, you'll hear overhear somebody. You go, "Well, oh, he 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 read the book uh, Free Will by Sam Harris." You can tell because these these are ideas are real popular now. And so we want to address that issue, and I would like to address it this morning biblically. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. What does the Bible say on the question, is there a God? Now, I know what you're thinking. You say, well, James, the Bible says there's a God. Atheist says there's no God. This is going to be an awfully short sermon. Probably not as short as you would like. What I am going to do, though, is I want to really unpack this a little bit because the Bible doesn't just say there's a God. It makes a case for there's a God. And so let's talk about this. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, uh, we find this. Paul writes and says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, uh, first to the Jew, and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the good news, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, already for the atheist, we've got a real issue here. Because the Bible is making it clear there's a God and that those who are righteous, those who have eternal life, will live how? by faith in God and faith in the good news, faith in the gospel. But the, the very issue of atheism is they don't have faith. So this is the problem that we're coming up against on this, this whole issue. And what you usually hear from, from atheists is the idea that, well, there's just not any evidence for God. If, if God's out there, why doesn't he do something to show himself? Uh, if there's a God, he needs a better public relations department. He needs to, to buy some... Uh, ads on social media. He needs, to, he, he needs to buy some ads for the Super Bowl or something. Get the word out better. And, and we hear the silence. We hear nothing but silence. So God's just not showing himself. But interestingly, if you look at one in your outline, the Bible's going to make a case here. The Bible's going to make the case that God is revealed. It says in verse 17, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is being revealed. And it says to everyone, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. A in your outline, God is revealed to everyone. And uh, verse 19, you, yeah, it says, since that which can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So God is revealing himself. He's showing them himself to everyone. The Bible's making the case for that. Now, Number one in your outline, God is being revealed, A, to everyone. The problem, though, is that we tend to suppress the truth. It's not that God's not showing. We don't want to be shown. We are suppressing that truth. Um, now, I'm not just talking about my atheist friends, that they do suppress the truth. But, you know, I find this in my own life. When God, I I'm really believe, is trying to show me something in my life that's not in alignment with his will for my life, my tendency as a, as a human is not to embrace that. I want to ignore that or procrastinate or go into In my own way, I find my own self, as much as I love God and want to follow him, I find myself tending to suppress 
the truth when God's showing me something. And I think that's part of the human sinful nature. So the problem is not that God's not showing. The problem is our response is that we're suppressing truth. Let me tell you, give you an example of what that might look like. Uh, one of the things that we have at our ministry is we have a, a, a monthly gathering called the Atheist and Christian Book Club. We get together with a bunch of atheists, a bunch of Christians. Uh, we do it now on Zoom. If you want to join, you can join from New Orleans. And, and what we do is we alternate. We do a, a Christian book one month, and then the next month we do an atheist book. And we have had some of the top Christian apologists, defenders, theologians, and some of the top names in, of atheists, uh, philosophers, cosmologists. Uh, last year we had Lawrence Krauss, uh, the, uh, the author of A Universe from Nothing, famous cosmologist, New York Times bestselling author, uh, uh, other well-known atheists. Bart Ehrman has been one of our guests at the book club. Uh, a, a New Testament critic. So we've had these top people and we bring them in. Well, this whole book club, I mean, we've had a, some great times to talk with atheists. Um, it came out of a, about a year that I would regularly meet. I was invited uh, to meet with the, um, the Metroplex atheists. I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's called the Metroplex right in the middle in Arlington. And they had this meeting of atheists called the Metroplex Atheists, and, and they meet for their weekly meeting, and, and I would come for a, about a year. I came, I was invited to come. We talked about everything. We talked about, um, we ta we talked about the uh, apparent design of the universe. We talked about the cosmological argument. We talked about, uh, we talked about the Dallas Cowboys. We talked about every kind of thing you can imagine, and I kind of got to know these guys over time, uh, th these men and women, and got to really kind of be friends with them. And, and one of the things I began to learn is you can reach people a lot better by talking with them than simply talking about them. And so out of this, we, we came our, our book club. But during this, this time of meeting, it was a bar right down the street from my office, half a block from my office. Uh, and in meeting with them, I wanted to ask a question about Romans 1. Do we really suppress truth? Is the problem that there's not enough evidence for God? Or is the real problem, we tend to want to suppress what evidence that comes along. So I had a question. I got their permission. I just did a little live video uh, on Twitter. And I went around and asked. I, I want to show you a little video clip. I talked to the president of Metroplex Atheist. And I, 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 asked, um, uh, I asked him, if you had sufficient proof that Christianity was true, would you, would you then worship Jesus? And I want you to hear how Randy Word answers that question. Let's, let's watch this video clip. Hey, this is James Walker, and I'm at the DFW Atheist Meetup. I've come here about, was invited a couple of months ago. I've come here about five or six times and have some friends here now we've been talking to. Of course, I'm coming from a Christian perspective. But I've uh, asked if I could interview a couple of these people about uh, what they believe. This is Randy. My, my friend Randy, how's it going? You heard the question already, but uh, I'll give it to you again. I wasn't listening. Okay, okay. Uh, just for our Christian friends, you know, uh, that are watching, if there was for you sufficient proof that Christianity and the Bible, uh, Old and New Testament were true, would you then uh, be willing to worship Jesus? I've had this conversations with my evangelical wife. Uh -huh. I told her I'm kind of 
either way because I don't believe that there is a God or I'm not even sure Jesus ever existed. And so he wasn't anything more than a mere mortal. But at any rate, um, I've read the Bible eight times and the God depicted and described in that Bible, Old and New Testament, I think has some real moral problems himself with the things that he caused to happen or did himself. Well, slaughtering the Israelites, slaughtering uh, all the inhabitants of Canaan or a lot of them, including children. And the New Testament doesn't get that much better. Everlasting torture is the ultimate cruel and unusual punishment for just not believing the right way. So I couldn't accept, even if they were proven to me that God was real and Jesus was real, I still have a real problem with their behavior and have I wouldn't be able to follow that. God and Jesus described in the Bible, even though Jesus had some good moral teachings, still the, the whole story and the everlasting torture, if you don't believe right, and all the slaughter God uh, brought about in the Old Testament, uh, no, I, I could not. That's that's not my idea of a all-loving God. Thanks so much, Randy. Appreciate it. If you listen, if you listen carefully, what what Randy Word is saying is well. Let me just ask you: Is the problem for Randy that there's not enough evidence? What he's saying is, even if he had fully sufficient evidence, he still would not. It, what we're seeing is it's not so much a lack of evidence; it's volitional. It's a decision. It is a suppression of what evidence comes out. And and you hear this. He says that. And again. I don't think this is unique to just atheists. I think every human being struggles with the, this, this uh, tendency to want to suppress when God's trying to do something in our lives. And so what we're seeing here is that, that this is the real issue, and, and that's brought out here in Romans 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So again, the Bible's making the case that God is revealing himself. See in your outline... God showed us. Well, you said, well, James, how did God show us? What, what about people who haven't even read the Bible or they don't have a Bible? So how, how would they even know about God? Well, of course, that's not Randy Word's problem, is it? Randy's read the Bible eight times. But there are people that maybe don't know. And, and so what we find in the Scriptures is that there's, there's kind of like two books of God. There's the Bible that we have, but there's another book, the book of creation, and there's general revelation. There's things we can learn about God even without a Bible. And Romans 1 is talking about this kind of way that God is revealing himself to us. It says in verse 20, how did God show us? For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Since the creation of the world being understood through what? through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So how does God show us? One way he does is through, D in your outline, through his creation, through general revelation, God is revealing things about himself, uh, that there is a God, that there's a creator of all things, that, that the universe uh, didn't just make itself, that there's a cause for this. And we can see this through general revelation, through his creation. And, of course, the last part of that verse is chilling because the end of verse 20 says, as a result, people are without excuse. So let me talk about just two ways. And this is going to be coming up at the conference at, at uh, Defend at uh, New Orleans Seminary. It says, 
Uh, there's the idea, too, in your outline, we are responsible. Well, how does God show us? How, why are we responsible? Well, one way is kind of a classic um, uh, defense for the existence of God is known, A, in your outline, as the cosmological argument. We can look at the world, look at the universe, and, and we can, through deduction, we can see certain things about how the universe got here and what, what are the, uh, uh, this effect, what could be the cause of that. And so the cosmological argument basically is uh, if you laid it out in a little formula, uh, it would go one, two, three. Number one, premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. This is classic science. It's called, it's called the law of causality. Things just don't happen unless they're cause, cause and effect. Two, premise two, the universe began to exist. Three, the universe has a cause. Now, this doesn't sound that controversial at first, but when you start to dig in, it becomes very controversial. In fact, premise two, the universe began to exist uh, for centuries, that was uh, the, 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 the main worldview, even going back to the Greeks and Romans, was that the universe didn't have a beginning, that the universe is eternal. Certainly by the Enlightenment, you have this, this overall idea amongst people, amongst the most scientists and things, that is called what's called the steady state model, that the universe is eternal, it's always existed, there's no beginning in the universe is eternal. So uh, until rather recently, until developments that began about a hundred years ago, most atheists would just simply say, no, premise two is wrong. The universe didn't begin to exist. The universe has always existed. But that, that problem is on hard times right now for a number of reasons. It goes back to Einstein, uh, who developed the theory of relativity and special relativity. Einstein began to see that the math inexorably was pointing to the fact that the universe had to have a starting point. And in fact, even Einstein himself was very resistant of this because of the, the theological implications of that. If the universe began to exist, then it would have to have a cause. And so Einstein, for a brief period of time, artificially put into his formula what he called the cosmological constant. And that would make the the universe be eternal, and that to fix this kind of problem. But he later acknowledged it was the biggest mistake he'd ever made in his professional career. Because evidence began to come out around that same time that, that, that showed the math was right. The universe did have a beginning. And you had people like uh, Edwin Hubble, astronomer, scientist. Uh, the, Hubble, uh, the Hubble telescope is named after him. Uh, he noticed something in his observation known as the Doppler effect. In fact, it's even called the Hubble effect or the redshift, that, that uh, objects far away in our, uh, in our universe, in our galaxy, there was a redshift and it was caused by the fact that they were, they were uh, quickly getting further and further away. There was an expansion of our galaxy, an expansion really of the universe. Well, the problem is the universe can't eternally expand. We wouldn't be seeing anything right now. It had to have a starting point. And so uh, basically the steady state model fell out of favor and was replaced with several other models, but most of them, what they have in common is the universe has a beginning. Well, then that begs the question, what is the cause of the universe? 
you have to have a cause. You have to have a sufficient cause. Well, does the cause of the universe matter? Sometimes you hear people say, well, all the matter in the entire universe was once compressed into something smaller than a microscopic. So that matter, then there was a great expansion, and that matter began to go across the universe. Well, you, the matter can't be the cause because matter is the effect. It can't cause itself. There was no matter. There was nothing. Well, was it energy? You have the same problem. Space, there was no space. Time, time did not even exist. In fact, Einstein and others have shown that time and space are inexorably connected to each other. So if that's the case, then, uh, if, if it's not cross out matter, cross out energy, cross out space, cross out time, what's the cause of the universe? Well, you can't say matter. You, you might want to say something immaterial. You might even say spiritual. They won't like that at all. But it can't be physical. So what are we left with? I think it's reasonable to say that an uncaused personal creator exists who is immaterial, not made of matter, immaterial, timeless, and enormously powerful. This is in the nutshell the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Well, we could go a lot deeper. In fact, uh, Michael Strauss, a uh, particle physicist at the University of Oklahoma, is one of the speakers that's going to be giving several workshops about particle physics and how and, and how the cosmological argument works and how uh, many of the scientists are desperately trying to find a way to make that not so uh, and, and why that's problematic. And you'll talk about multiverses and all this. And, and he says it in, in layman's terms where even I can understand it. We can understand. I want to encourage you to be part of that conference if you can. Well, there's a second way that we can learn about God merely by looking at the universe, looking at creation, looking at our world. And we can deduce several important things about God. And the second one, B in your outline, is the moral argument. The moral argument. The very fact that we intrinsically know there is something such as good and bad, um, there's something virtuous and evil, the fact that we know that directly implies there must be a God. And I'll, I'll explain how that happens in a minute. But first of all, what I want to do is back up and say, wow, this is one of the spots where the atheists really want to flip the tables and make there be no God. What their argument would be, the atheist, when it comes to morality, good and evil, would say this, the atheist's objection, if God is good and all-powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? Now, you probably heard that argument. In fact, I will, I will say this, of all my, my interaction with atheists and agnostics, this is the number one objection that we have to uh, the fact that there's a God, the fact that there's so much evil. If there's a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil? Does he, is he not powerful enough? Or maybe is he evil himself and that's why he likes evil? And you'll hear variations of this argument. Let me, let me just tell you how this argument might sound. Remember I told you about Stephen Fry, the the, the British uh, actor, uh, social activist, uh, outspoken atheist, he was interviewed on British television and asked, uh, and asked about God, and he brought up this whole problem of evil. Uh, let's watch this and see what it sounds like. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite mm. of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. 
What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. Totally selfish. Totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. Wow. So you see he's making this case right here. The very fact that there's evil means that there cannot be a God. Now, I don't want to put words in Stephen Fry's mouth, but did you see what I just saw? It, it's almost like he's saying, there is no God, and I'm angry at him. Did you notice that? Now, let me say, I don't believe in the Greek god Zeus, but I'm not upset about it. It just doesn't exist. There is, again, something visceral, something uh, visible, something that, that's tangible, that there's, it's more than just the absence of a God. There's an anger that you often see, a reaction to this, that I think really kind of makes the case that maybe there's more likely that there is a God rather than not a God. So let me just ask his question for him. Does evil disprove God? The very fact that there's, or maybe if this much evil, does that mean there cannot be a God? Let me just say, the very fact that evil exists assumes an objective moral standard of what is right and what is wrong. And a great question to ask when this conversation comes up with a, a skeptic or an agnostic is to simply say, what do you mean by evil? What's evil? What does that even mean? And as they start to define it, you see how this begins to work out. I, early on in my, in my meeting with the, the uh, atheist, at the Betplex atheist down, at, uh, uh, down the street at the bar, it was interesting how they would um, uh, uh, several times ask me at some point, hey, hey James, you, you like us, right? I said, yeah, you guys, you know, you, you're friends, and we have some great conversations. Can you do us a favor? Can you tell all your, all your Christian friends about us atheists that we're not really evil people? We're good people. We can be a good friend. A lot of Christians think that because we're atheists, we're evil. Can you let them know, James, that we're, we're not evil? Well, I just asked that question. What do you mean by evil? Well, you know, we're not, uh, we're not criminals. We're not breaking the law, you know, for example. I said, oh, 
if you break the law, that's what makes you evil. Let me, let me ask you this. You know it was legal in Nazi Germany to kill Jews, but wasn't that still evil even though it was legal? Well, you, you know what we mean, James. We're, we're not doing evil things. We're not doing, what do you mean by evil? And they begin to have a problem defining it. Well, you know what we mean. Some, one of the guys finally says, we're not going around killing babies. You'd be surprised what people think about us. I said, uh, well, who said killing babies is evil? Well, everybody knows killing babies is evil. I said, well, you know, baby killers don't know that. How do you know it's evil? How do you determine what's evil? Okay, everybody doesn't know that it's evil, but the vast majority of people know that killing babies is evil. So, oh, wait a minute. So what makes something evil is you have to do a poll, a survey. So you talk to people and you ask them if it's evil. What does it take to become evil? 51% say, or does it take 72%? Quantify this for me. At what point does a survey prove that something is evil? And let me ask you a more important question. Does it matter when you take the survey? On almost any social issue, the, the, the Metroplex Atheists, they have a uh, uh, a display every year at the gay pride parade and they get ready for that every year I say you know at the gay pride thing on the on the issue of let's say same-sex marriage you ask people and do a survey how many think that's good and you ask that survey let's say 20 years ago and then you take that same survey today you're going to get a totally different answer to that question so is evil objective or is it just a flipping of the coin? Is it, is it a preference, what you prefer or what you would like? Or is there an objective way of evaluating that something is good or something is evil? Now, once you say there's an objective standard, it has to be outside of the context. And you're appealing to someone or something outside of our system that can determine those things. And so it's, it, again, implies a God. So you could ask the question this way. Uh, what do you say to that? If there is no God, by what standard are you judging this event to be objectively wrong? Now, what about people dying? You heard Stephen Fry make the argument. Or sometimes they'll make a more emotional version of that, off, uh, of that uh, argument. Well, why do... Uh, people die, or more importantly, why do, why do children die? Let's children, innocent children, why do they die? It must mean that God is evil. Well, again, it's an emotional argument because all death is wrong. All death is bad. It's not like it's bad when a child dies, but when they turn 18, it's fine. Well, no, it's still bad when they're 18 or 22 or 95. It doesn't matter the age. Death is an evil thing. It's a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. And does it mean that God is evil because he doesn't stop death? Now listen, God is the author of life and death. God is part of the job description of God. Uh, so God uh, has a right to what? He can take life. He can give life. He can take life away. He can resurrect it. But listen to me, he can also usher it into eternity. So part of the problem is, if you, if you have a natural worldview, you think that death is the end of everything, where God says it's not. And so 
we can't judge things by simply at death, everything stops. So here's the moral argument in a nutshell. The moral argument be in your outline for the existence of God. Number one, if objective moral values exist, then God exists. Two, objective moral values do exist. Let me, let me stop right there. On, in virtually every culture around the world, there's going to be an appeal to a standard of what is right and wrong. Now, that varies. So this part of the world, something's wrong, and in this part of the world, it's right. But they appeal to it as being a universal standard. You, you, you don't believe me. Try this. At the restaurant today, when you go out to lunch at the restaurant, and it says the wait time is 45 minutes, you've been there, right? Okay. Just say, no, I want to be at the front of the line and just walk up there. I want to be seated next. But no, no, that's wrong. Well, where's that written down? That's what I want. Well, no, there's an appeal that there's a universal standard that we all ought to be in line with. And so that's what the appeal is. Well, that requires three in your outline. Therefore, God exists. There has to be a standard giver, a law giver. Now, so why doesn't God do something about evil? The truth of the matter is he is. But he's not immediately destroying evil for several reasons. What he's doing is three in your outline. God is redeeming evil. God is redeeming. He's saving the evil. He's redeeming those who are evil. Look at, we already saw it, but let's look back at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. Ashamed is to be disappointed or let down. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. So A in your outline, only God has the power. He redeems through the power of the gospel. Only God has the power. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as, is written, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So B in your outline, that gospel, that good news is offered to all people. Verse 17, for in it, the, the, the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, uh, three in your outline. God is redeeming. Uh, see, those who receive by faith. So we're asking you to believe. There is evidence. We talk about the cosmological argument, the moral argument. There's many other arguments, fine-tuning argument. God is giving us a witness. He's giving us an evidence. And we're asking to have faith, not to suppress that truth in our unrighteousness, but to receive that truth and to receive it by faith. But again, that I, I can hear my atheist friends echoing in my head. And well, James, simply matter, if God's all-powerful, why doesn't God just stop the evil? Just stop it. Why not? Well, there's some reasons, I think, why God doesn't just stop all the evil. And you, and you can address that with a couple of different questions. Uh, um, uh, Sam Harris said it this way in, in his book, either God can do nothing to stop catastrophes or he doesn't care to or he does not exist. And he goes on to say, only one, three possibilities choose wisely is what he says. Well, actually, there's more than three possibilities here. And I think God is in the process of redeeming, but why doesn't he just stop it then? A couple of questions to ask on that. How much evil would you like God to stop? That's the first question I have for you. Yeah, you usually hear this, all evil. Why doesn't he just stop all of it? If he's all-powerful, stop it all. 
Okay, second question. When would you like to God to stop all evil, destroy all evil? You'll usually hear, immediately. He should have already done it. Certainly, he needs to do it immediately. Okay? He needs to stop all evil. He needs to do it immediately. Do I need, can, can I remind you from a Christian perspective, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're suppressing God's truth in our unrighteousness. That means that we are evil. Would you like him to stop it and destroy it right now, or you want him to wait a little bit? Well, I don't mean me. I mean the other evil, not, not me. Well, see, God is patient because he loves you, even though he loves me, even though I'm a sinner. He's patient with me. And he doesn't want to destroy me right away. He wants to redeem me instead. And that takes time. That takes God's patience. So the problem of evil, does God have a solution? Again, I think it's the number one problem of Christianity from an atheist perspective. The number one issue comes up regularly in our book club about every other month. Somebody's going to bring up why is there so much evil. And I know there's a solution. I'd love to tell you I have the solution. And all, all of history, no philosopher has been able to tell you the answer to this, but I have come up with the answer, but I, I really haven't. I, I'm not God. I don't, I don't know exactly why it works out the way it does. But I have a couple of clues I want to leave you with. Just a couple of clues. Um, first of all, I want you to think about the most evil event in the entire history of the world. I think an argument could be made of all the evil, the most evil single event was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The creator of heaven and earth come down, tried, convicted, beaten, crucified. Perhaps there's no greater crime and no greater evil in the history of the world. Why didn't God just stop it? Oh, do you wish he would? Or are you kind of glad that God allowed that to happen? Because not only is it the greatest evil, it also became the greatest blessing. Because my salvation, your salvation, and the salvation of millions of others came out of that terrible evil event that God turned to something that was a blessing. So the most evil event became also the greatest blessing. Now, I don't think that solves the problem of evil, but to me it gives me a helpful, hopeful clue that maybe in some way God does something good with all that evil out there. If he could do it with the, most great, uh, the greatest of all evil things, perhaps he does it with more as well. Now, let me close with saying this. The question, is there a God, is not just for the atheist and Christian book club. It's not just for questions that skeptics have or doubters, agnostics. Listen, let me tell you this. There's going to come a time in my life, a time of your life, and every other human being when we're going to ask ourselves that same question. Now you're saying, well, we, I believe, so do I. But let me tell you something. When life crashes in, when you're dealing with a major tragedy, a health concern, a financial collapse. When you're dealing with the life's lowest points, anybody, even, even the great John the Baptist, sent out his companion to, to ask Jesus, are you the one or do we wait for another? We will have our doubts. Listen, there's nothing wrong with a Christian having doubts. In fact, I could argue that the only Christian that never has doubts is the one who never thinks. If you think, you will have doubts. 
Nothing wrong with that. God still loves you. But let me tell you, we're going to have that question. And what I want to assure you from God's word is God is, God is good all of the time. And we can put our faith and trust in that type of God. And when you're going through the, va the valley of the shadow of death, let me tell you, you are going to have possibly doubts and questions. Me too. But God still loves us. God is still patient with us. And God is not destroying. God is in the process of redeeming. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the truth of your word. And help us when we're going through our dark time that we can continue to have faith because the just, the righteous shall live by faith is what you said. And help us to trust not blindly without any evidence, but knowing that you've left a witness for us. You've given us evidence in your written word. You've given us evidence in your, your, your creation that we can know you're out there, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you are redeeming us from our sin and seating us in heavenly places with your son, Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name.